This is the Skelf Podcast, and I am Mark Belden. Skelf is to be found at www.skelf.org.uk. It's a virtual project space accessible to anyone everywhere. Like a physical artist-run gallery, it's a space created and curated by artists presenting work in different ways. It's not the documentation of an exhibition happening somewhere else. The site is the space, and the visitor is you on your computer or device. This is the third podcast where we have tried to gather all the artists from a whole season of exhibitions around a particular theme. This time, the shows center on the idea of touch. I'll be speaking to Jenny Dunseith and Kate Squires together, Davinia Ann Robinson, Holly Graham, and then Flora Parrott and Kelly Large together as well. All their exhibitions in some way rely upon a physical encounter, hands and bodies in contact with objects or places. I guess something that came up again and again that I, I didn't immediately associate with touch was a revisiting, returning to objects or images, returning to past work and thinking about it again, picking things up again, and in turn feeling like the process is open-ended, that these exhibitions are a document of a moment in time, that there will be more to say in the future. I like to think of this podcast in a similar way. It's wonderful to get to speak to so many amazing artists, and as much as I am shaping the interviews by asking questions and by editing, sometimes I feel like other people listening might understand things I don't. It's been such a privilege to have been able to record an archive of so many artists, in their own words, in their own voices. And even the extraneous noises, the appliances and sirens, echoey rooms and fragmented Zoom connections. As much as I try and minimize these things, they are the texture of our lives at this moment. Earlier this summer, I had the chance to visit Kate Squire's studio and speak to Kate and Jenny Dunseith about their exhibition Touch Type, which was the first show in the touch season. Although they both come from a background in sculpture and object making, Jenny has also been working a lot in the digital space. At the beginning of our conversation, we speak about their previous collaboration, As Seen, which was part of the 2020 Skelf exhibition, Ways and Means. This can be found in the Skelf archive. I speak first, and then Kate, and then Jenny. Uh, have a listen for the barking dog outside the window that almost makes me lose my train of thought. Here's an excerpt of the wonderfully unsettling audio from TouchType. So in 2020, you did you were part of the Skelf show Ways and Means. Was that the first time you'd collaborated or presented something as a collaboration? It was, yeah. It was, um, we, we'd, we were talking about this earlier, actually. We'd kind of, I mean, we worked together. We worked together at, at Bath Spa. Um, and so we had lots of conversations, I suppose, you know, getting the train to Bath from London and things like that. And we, we're both from the from a sculptural background, and Jenny makes digital sculpture, and I make tangible sculpture, and so a lot of our conversations were about sculpture, really, and um, and so 
as seen, which was the first collaboration, kind of came out of those conversations. Um, and we were thinking, I mean, it was part of the pandemic, it was, it was through mm. the pandemic. And I think, you know, for all of us kind of going online and dealing with online and also teaching online and, you know, thinking about how you look at work online, how you look at objects online and what happens. And we were talking a lot about visual tactility um, and about how you kind of almost need to move objects to be able to see the surface and the kind of reflections and what happens to the surface and those kind of conversations. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it stemmed essentially from our background of as sculptors who understand the 3D, trying to understand 4D to the eleventh dimension. You know how how as object makers do we communicate through the uh, through the screen? Um, and actually doing. I mean, we made a film in here in the studio. <laughs> so I mean, obviously we couldn't. Jen, you'd never been to my studio yeah. at that point. So. Actually, that you know, there, there was a point where I borrowed my partner's iPad and had your film on the iPad in the studio against the wall with my objects, and then I, I spoke to you on the on Skype or on the phone or something, and it was the first point in a way that the objects had been able to talk to each other, so that felt quite important, um, and actually making that whole project online, you know, virtually mm. <laughs> with us kind of talking virtually about it, kind of made sense in a way, didn't it? Yeah. And that's what led on to um, future projects and, and, yeah, kind of how we work and continue to work, really. Um, so the importance of the screen and the typing and emails and um, how our words form um, has been a kind of consistent um, yeah, exploration. We're trying to work these things out. And then, and then with touch type, it feels like it's... the process is sort of intensified and you're making a whole kind of its own self-contained world or you know it has a, um, a look to it and um, it, did you did that just come out of continuing the work together or in ways yeah I think one of the things kind of reflecting on as seen which was a, essentially a static film we were very much aware that there was a passivity for the audience that it, you are watching. Um, what's great with Scalp, of course, is that you can choose as and when you watch and how much you watch. And one of the things that we were kind of really interested in doing with touch type was really kind of expanding and accentuating this disembodied relationship to the screen. So there seemed to be a real kind of um, importance to that interactivity of an audience. So them engaging with the, with the keys, engaging with the film, moving them, playing what they want, what they don't want. So, so from that sense, um, it being um, a, a much more active, engaged piece was, 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 was certainly an element. And it, well, I guess it also, like it's moved in, I mean, it's not, not totally black and white, but it's sort of moved oh. into largely monochrome or, you know, not a lot of colour. And then there are things... <laughs> but there are also things that, like this sort of this, this masked character oh. or this masked figure that emerges. How did that evolve? Yeah, so the, the, the black and white aesthetic 
came about from, I think, and do, I'm sure Kate will remember better than me, that we were thinking about the kind of paring down of our experience of the screen and that original relationship stemming from when you're typing in a Word document, generally you have a white page and a you know, black text, and there's a kind of pairing back. We became interested in what that experience of typing does um, to our understanding of language and letters. Um, so the difference to, for example, when you're handwriting and you have that physical um, sensation, that element of resistance of a page, whereas typing a key does something else. You're pressing a button that isn't the same shape as the letter that you would normally write in handwriting. So already there's a kind of distancing from your experience of what that letter is if you're doing it by hand. You're typing a key and it's appearing in this space in front of you. And that one key can then form, has the opportunity to form a sentence, a paragraph, a form of communication, which may or may not make sense. Um, so I think that was one component of mm. it, but I think there were several different factors to this pairing down of, of, yeah. of colours. I, I tend to, I suppose my approach is to make them, and I work with letters quite a lot as kind of material, um, and they tend to be, I suppose that, that relationship is, you know, if you paint them black, then they have that relationship to, to the keyboard and to the way that you see things on the screen. And then we started to look at different kind of, you know, we looked at The Haunting, mm. which is a, a kind of a film from the 60s, um, a horror film. That, and, and I think that came out of, I think quite early on, Jenny made this really wonderful film using brackets, mm. open brackets, and filming them through a fish tank. Um, which kind of made them in verse it was, and, and kind of closed the brackets. It was quite amazing. And, and, it, was, and it had a real quality to it, which, which sort of talked to kind of 70s video art. Um, so that was one element. So it, it sort of naturally happened through some of the things that we were looking at around mm. the work. And then The Haunting, which is a kind of, it's quite a sort of classic kind of B-movie from the 60s, which uses a lot of film tropes to create kind of these horror. You know, you never see, you never see the, the thing that's haunting everyone. You just hear it and it bulges through walls. So it's, you know, so it had that kind of, you know, high contrast, close up. So I think we sort of looked at those kind of, the idea of how you might film things and what might happen with them. Um, and then you're amazing development of the mask <laughs> and, the, mask. and the figure. I, I think that came out of, um, we were sort of talking about how you, you know, you, you, you press a, a button, a, you know, the key, and then you see this, this um, letter, which is almost on, you know, on this screen adjacent to you, uh, the, the kind of disembodiedness, but also the sort of haunting of this letter that comes almost outside of your body somewhere else but started in your mind we're having those kind of conversations and and so I suppose I, I wanted to try and emulate that with the physical letters um, and to do that I almost wanted to kind of perform them and um, naturally I try and disguise myself <laughs> when I do performance I mean it's a kind of a natural thing to wear a mask for me actually because it's just 
you know, I'm not that brave. Um, but also it meant that the, you know, that the letter was then in contrast to the, the performer. Um, so it kind of put into doubt this idea of the kind of human and non-human, or just sort of played with that a bit. Um, but I also was, was you know, we were talking about kind of 70s kids programmes, mm. like Jigsaw, mm. which has been a bit of an influence on me. <laughs> um, you know, and that idea of how people used to use words and talk about letters and, you know, the whole programme might be about the letter A and there was a character called Nosy Bunk and um, the listeners that are kind of, you know, over the age of 40 um, that might know this character um, who had this great big kind of white nose and a white mask and white gloves and would go round pointing at letters. So that was a bit... <laughs> Quite sinister looking, but that was a bit of an influence as well. But also the kind of very early mask. Oh, yeah, that was true. That was a key influence. Mm. Yeah, the mask was kind of... It was going to Alison Katz, actually, at Camden Arts Centre. Really great show. And um, and she'd used this idea of the mask in her work. And, um, and then looking at the first ever mask that was found and recognised as a mask. So And it was very simple. And so that was... <laughs> The mask was based on that mask. Um. Yeah, I think I think throughout lots of the films, they're they're evoking touch without touching. So the the the, the masked man, female figure, um, is gloved. So there's no direct contact. The um, and lots of the films don't talk about a direct contact with objects. It's about you know they'll they'll be you know step away a hand, um, a plaster hand, with the letters at the end of it aren't touching the letters, but it's a gloved, almost like a detached gloved hand appearing in a space. So it's, again, kind of reiterating that touch through non-touch. Um, and actually, we really, we were quite clear about that, weren't mm. we? Um, that we, I mean, I don't know how we were, but, <laughs> but we really decided that we didn't want our hands to be in the film or, you know, our human bodies somehow mm. to be in it. And... I think maybe coming from our scene where it was very much about moving objects mm. as well, you know, and, and the hands kind of going in and grabbing gherkins, we didn't want them to be visible. Mm. Um, so I guess the only films that were were not our hands, so the Alphabetus Picasso film, I think there is. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but that, oh, yeah. there's someone, someone else's hands, so it's OK. Mm. <laughs> well, and then um, there is... the. I suppose it's a slightly different the this the scenes with the contact lens, yeah, um, yeah, which is really yeah. visceral, yeah, painful, <laughs> <laughs> and and letraset on teeth and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Was there letraset on the contact lens as yeah. well? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and thinking about the contact lens as a as a well, it's a lens as a, as another screen as a way of seeing and um, um, yeah, it is a screen. Um, and disrupting that. Um, so those sort of interventions where they become very, um, um, yeah, kind of physical, kind of make people wince in that sort of horror film way or the way that, you know, when you're watching people squeezing spots online, it just has that <laughs> physical, you have that physical reaction. To is this the darker um, end of ASMR? <laughs> it is. It is and that was part of our research, <laughs> squeezing spots. Yeah. Um. <laughs>
That was another excerpt of audio from TouchType. Thank you, Kate and Jenny. Be sure to take the time to get lost in the strange and wonderful world of TouchType on the Skelf site. You can find more of Kate's work at katesquires.co.uk, and Jenny's website is jennydunseeth.com. The next show in the Touch season was Davinia Ann Robinson's Two Hypersaline Waters. Davinia is an artist whose work concentrates on the engagement between her body and materials and explores how presencing, fugitivity, and tactility can undo the colonial frameworks through which nature and bodies of color are articulated. I spoke to Davinia over Zoom a few weeks ago. Before our conversation, let's immerse ourselves in a bit of the audio from Two Hypersaline Waters. I guess I was I was wondering about the process of the show. Did it did it start with a visit to Gutharadara? Um Yeah. Uh well actually it started so I first went to this site in 2017 um, when I was traveling. So yeah, that was the first time I went to the site and I was just documenting my travels. I was in Australia for a year, basically. I just went um, with my partner to work and travel, um, basically. Um, so yeah, I went to Gutharadara and um, I just, yeah, basically documented my time there. I think about... Um, I think about two years later, maybe, um, or two and a half years later, that's when I sort of wrote that poem as well. So it had always stayed with me, my, my time there, and my time in the water, my time just sitting um, on the beach. Um, and actually that little bit of footage is something that I revisited quite a lot. Um, and it had just been really playing on my mind for, for a long time. And um, after my, uh, yeah, after my travels, um, I had done some research uh, about the location. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think, yeah, then I wrote, wrote the poem, basically. And then it was with uh, this opportunity for the exhibition that, it kind of came together, bringing that poem with the images together um, and with a little bit of um, text from um, uh, from the book Woman on the Edge of Time, basically. And I catch myself in conversation with other environments I inhabit and other sentient subjects, fauna, flora, biome, my foot pressing into tufts of grass. Each time her foot touched the ground, dirt rubbed into raw meat. Dangling between open space and open rock, ground rock, ground shark bay, cock or phagnum, ragnum, washes over my toes and lays pressed between my feet. Gutharadara's two hypersailing waters. It's really interesting, you, I guess, with 
the show and the sort of uh, the sort of like immersive slow, a bit of slowing down, you know, which is really um, it's really interesting to do that in a virtual space in the gallery space. You're working with sort of earth as material and water as material, and uh, like was it a challenge to kind of get that across in or like the tactility or the your body interacting with these materials in a virtual online exhibition um it didn't feel like a challenge because um it's something that I wanted to do for a while actually um and um I don't know I think the film work of my feet in the water um, I think it's quite tactile. I feel like the online exhibition is quite tactile anyway, and it's quite immersive. And um, yeah, it it kind of felt like having this, having the online exhibition was an opportunity to, yeah, to explore my practice that way. And it didn't feel taxing at all, actually. It felt quite, it felt like this is how, um, this piece of work is supposed to be seen um, and I think maybe that's why it took from like 2017 first going to Gufaradara and then to this point for it to come up online or, or for it to be exhibited because it's like it is online um, and that's something that um, I had help with so that's great um, you know rather than yeah, so I think that's why it, it took that many years to come together this way. Um, because, yeah, it's felt like it was like an online piece of work. Um, I've never thought about, I never thought about sort of those images um, or that film sort of existing in a gallery space, in like a traditional, like, brick and mortar gallery space. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess the online it sort of allows you to have the I guess a very one-on-one -on -one, or the viewer can have a very one-on-one -on -one relationship with the piece or uh, and have audio and text and visuals all at the same time and completely and it allows for the sort of it's like never ending so I don't um so basically, if you keep on scrolling to the bottom of the page, it just like loops back again, which is something that um, I think I do explore in my like physical practice. This kind of um, like ever flowing, like when I use clay, for instance, it can just be reused and reused again or like a movement of a body over and over again. So and even with my um, sort of soundscapes, there's a lot of repetition with it. Um, as as there is with this exhibition and the poem, there's a lot of repetition, but it allow like the website allows for the whole piece just to be on a continual loop. This repetition as well. Um, so yeah, it it's it's very immersive, um, but the platform also allowed me to sort of yeah explore this piece in a way that I I think I would have found really difficult to do. So it just didn't fit. The, like a gallery space I guess you've 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 already covered this a bit but I guess I was going to ask like how you were 
thinking about touch in making the show? Yeah, um, so I I think touch is always in my practice anyway, so I didn't like specifically think about touch. I think it just really fits and everything basically that I explore is experience, is exploring or thinking about touch or interaction, connection, tactility with um, just as like a, a base layer anyway for my work. Um, but for this particular piece, I just remember when I was, yeah, when I was basically in the, the waters. So the, the waters there are like hypersaline. So it, which means basically it's just got a high uh, percentage of salt. So you basically float, <laughs> you know, okay, yeah. beautiful water. Um, and when I was at Gutharada, which is in Western Australia, it's, uh, the the beach, the coast is just um, basically it's like cockle um, shells. So it's just this white broken down cockle shells all over, and that's what makes up the consistency of the beach. And then you get to this water, which is just crystal clear, basically. And um, the day that I was there was in summer, in like Australian summer. Um, so hot <laughs> um, and I just walked into the water and I just lay down and floated basically and because of the horizon um, and the skyline there was this real like evidence of non sort of breakage between like my body my toes <laughs> this water this skyline and um, sort of like touching all three, including the cockles, which make, you know, the bottom of the, the seabed or the, the beach. And then, yeah, my body and the history of like my body being in this space and also the bodies of like bodies which have been touched by colonialism, how Gutharadara has been come to be known by a different name by most, which is Sharp Bay, which is its colonial name. Um, yeah, and all this history, basically. Um, and it was just, yeah, basically this moment of this connection between all of these histories and also my body and uh, colonialism, which has impressed them to me and the movement and displacement of my body and my ancestors' bodies and how sort of like come to be in this moment, in this space, in this land, which has been so touched by um, colonialism. So yeah, th that's what this piece of work was sort of exploring these sort of moments of, of touch basically, um, and these moments of histories, but also these moments of sort of like uh, fugitivity. I think these moments of connecting to um, the land to histories and to myself um, as a moment of like dismantling, yeah, dismantling uh, colonialism. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I, this work sort of explores touch and how, you know, my experiences um, in that specific location, how it's like impressed upon me and stayed with me now and it's something I draw back to this can which is like greater than my greater than my physical body. 
Thank you, Davinia, for taking the time to speak to me. Before, after, and in the middle of our conversation, we heard excerpts of the audio from her show, Two Hypersaline Waters. I think I just keep using the words immerse and immersive when talking about this work, but I think that's exactly it. In the warm water, cockle shells underfoot, hearing Davinia's poem, do go and immerse yourself in this great show on the Scalf site. Also, Davinia's website is daviniaannrobinson.com. You can find information about her other projects there. My next conversation is with Holly Graham. Holly is the first returning guest on the podcast. Be sure to go back and check out episode three, where she's interviewed as part of her other project, Cypher Billboard. Holly is a London-based artist who works across print, audio, and video. Her exhibition on Scalf is Haptic Registers, Tender Images, Sonic Frequencies. The show brings together a few previous works, her work with the archive of Harry Jacobs, a Brixton-based photographer, work around a collection of sugar bowl figurines she first came across in the V&A, and Beholden, A Duty of Care, Holly's essay linking these two bodies of work and thinking about images of individuals from the black diaspora. I spoke to Holly in her studio, and it was a very warm summer day. It was too hot to close the windows, so you might hear a few passing planes. If you went on holiday from Heathrow or Gatwick in July, that might just be your flight in the background. Let's hear an excerpt of Beholden, A Duty of Care, before the interview. I want to think about attending to images. Collections of images that simultaneously don't belong to you, and yet do. Found photographs taken by others, of others. Orphaned images that depict skin like your skin. Tentative groupings, fragile, difficult, raw, fugitive, demanding of a tender engagement, soft touch, slow looking, careful study. So the, the show on Scalf sort of annotates and illustrates uh, an essay you wrote. Uh, beholden, a duty of care. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I I wrote this essay in towards the end of twenty nineteen, actually, for a publication called On Care, which was edited by Rebecca Jago and Sharon Kivland, um, and they they both invited me to contribute to this like anthology, uh, essentially, and so having having this was, yeah, a good opportunity to sort of spend some time also really thinking about some of the work I'd been making over the past couple of years before that. And I sort of pulled, pulled together a couple of strands of research I'd been doing, um, one around the late South London-based photographer Harry Jacobs and his sort of studio portrait photography um, and then the other, which was looking at broadly histories and legacies of sugar, but specifically starting from these two sugar bowls, mice and porcelain, sort of um, 1700s sugar bowls, um, which were in the V&A's collection. The essay sort of 
allowed me space to think about working with images that have a pull on me somehow or that I, I've been drawn to in different ways and specifically images that um, depict in some way or attempt to represent um, some form of uh, black being. Um, though, I guess, and, and thinking about the complexity of the construction of images as well, and of these images in particular, which, you know, some of, some of them, particularly the sugar bowls, are a sort of white European lens or gaze that's constructing a very fictional uh, depiction of black skin, um, whereas the Jacobs images are sort of self-authored or in, in spite of the fact that they are taken by Harry Jacobs, who was a white man, Jewish man, um, they were commissioned by the sitters and they are images of real black people. Um, and they're very, diff they're very different collections of images, but I was just interested in thinking through approaches to working with imagery that had this sort of pull on me and why, what the sort of protective measures were that I was engaging with as I was working with those two bodies of material in the studio and thinking about why I was doing that and, and yeah, how. And I'd been reading certain things at the time that had really spoken to, I guess, some of my ways of working. So I was, I, I'd, I'd actually attended a talk by writer Christina Sharp. It must have been when She'd just brought out um, her book, In the Wake, on blackness and being. Um, and I was so taken by how she sort of spoke about lived black experience as being, like through these sort of metaphors of the hold, the wake, the weather, and thinking about life lived in the aftermath of slavery um, as this sort of wake or this reverberation, this sort of path carved out in water, what's left behind as well as thinking about it through these other frames of reference, thinking about loss and mourning and uh, being attendant and uh, alert as well. So wake and wakefulness. Christina Sharp also speaks about wake work and that's this sort of idea of attending to images or thinking about working with imagery in a way that is really imbued with care um, and she speaks about these two different registers um, or these two different um, approaches. One is um, what she calls black annotation and the other is black redaction. So this idea of like, what can you do to help frame or hold an image um, that might be, it might be a violent image or it might be a sensitive image for some reason that's imbued with these like, um, yeah, these kind of complex histories or elements so what can you do to sort of hold that and one of the ways might be that you might add to it you might annotate it you might sort of uh, give it some context or another way is that you might protect it by redacting taking away blocking out elements that you don't want to share with a viewer and um, so yeah I was really interested in these sort of different approaches and in how some of these things I was doing in the studio sort of in intuitively and um, it was great to have like language as well that 
I could like uh, relate to or map onto some of these practices. Um, and then I was also I was also at the time reading, or I had been reading um, some writing by uh, a writer called Tina Kant, who looks at she's American actually, um, yeah, African American writer, um, but looks at um, images of individuals of the African diaspora in a European co context. But yeah, she, she's really interesting because she thinks about photography in particular and uh, thinks about these sort of really careful, uh, finely attentive and attuned um, ways of interacting with photography. And she talks about the sort of like haptic registers involved in, um, in thinking through and engaging with photography. So those haptic registers might be the actual like touch-based relationship with an image that you thumb, you know, you handle if you've got a printed image. Um, it might be the sort of, if you've got domestic sort of snapshots and things, it might be like how how we look through those in a photo album or whether we put one on a mantelpiece. Obviously that's changing because our images are more digital now as well. But what are those sort of haptic relations? Um, and then she speaks about this different register, which is more to do with the social relations within the images and how those images were constructed and created. So the, the viewer, or rather the photographer and the subject, like how did they come into being? What, what were those yeah, social dynamics and relations that made the image? Um, and then again, another layer to it is the social lives of the images themselves. So how do they circulate? Where, where did they come from? Where have they gone to now? Um, and like with the Harry Jacobs photographs, they existed um, first as like these commissioned prints, but for people to usually take home, maybe put on a mantelpiece, maybe to send to a relative overseas, yeah, and so the, the essay just allowed me space to kind of think through some of those different things in relation to work that I'd been making. Like you'd been, you'd been working with the Harry Jacobs archive before, mm. or you'd been working with those images before reading that text, and that was, it was almost a resonance back from yeah. the work you've already done and, and recognising... Yeah, absolutely. It was, I'd been working with those images or I'd been looking at those images since about like 2014. Um, and then I started making work in response to them a couple of years later, which is actually how some of my work does come about. Like the, the sugar work as well was sort of a response to some research I'd done a few years previously as part of a separate sort of project, if you like. Um, so sometimes these things like come back and resonate. So this like looping is something that I'm quite interested in or like this returning to and reworking of or turning over of certain ideas again and again. So with the Scalf work, returning to the essay was also a part of that revisiting. And in that revisiting, there were discoveries there and... Um, one of the one of the really exciting things actually was like I was um, 
looking at some of... So over the past couple of years, in a sort of non-directly studio or non-directly sort of like outcome-related way, I've collected certain imagery. So my great-aunt passed away at the end of last year and I live in her house um, and lived with her actually initially but a few years back before she moved into a home um, and my granddad um, also the same around the same age 93 so very full lives um, also passed away at the end of last year and I had this like compulsion on both occasions and actually even before Aunt Carmen passed away um, to like document their homes as these sort of spaces that um, are in themselves sort of a form of self, not self-portrait, a portrait of that person and what they've surrounded themselves with. And um, yeah, and they're also very particular and specific to a time and a particular cultural experience, which is like, I guess, a West Indian, quite Windrush generation maybe, experience of uh, relocating to the UK and settling and there's a particular decor which is recognisable. Actually the recent show at um, Tate Britain, Bet Life Between Two Islands, Two Islands yeah. um, there's, there's a piece in there which is this, um, re this literal installation of the front room, of a Caribbean front room. Um, and so much of that is recognisable, like even some of the same furniture in my aunt's house, which is just like, wow. Was... But anyway, the point is that I did some, I took some images of both of those spaces at those times. And I wanted to return to it when I was making the work for Skelf because I felt it would help to sort of animate the essay in some way. Like when it's talking about domestic photography, it's talking about how we handle family photographs and... I thought some of the footage sort of spoke to that. Um, and so I was looking through some of the some of the footage and like playing it quite slowly and up close. And it, it was really weird because I think at the same time I had like one of the Harry Jacobs images up because I was also thinking about that. And as the this particular image slid by, it, I sort of just noticed in the background of one of the prints of my granddad that I'm quite familiar with because I've seen it loads of times. Um, this wall, which is in loads of Harry Jacobs prints, and it was blurry, so I couldn't quite make out if it was correct. But I was like, I'm pretty sure. And then I was like scrubbing back and forth, like zooming in. And then I was texting my family, like, "Is this? <laughs> is that? You know, do you have this print?" And so, did you yeah. manage to get the print? Yes, so, so that, yeah. The, or find it. I did find, so I, one of the people who I messaged was my aunt, his daughter, and she, she said, you know, yes, I found a photograph, um, and you're right, on the back it does say the studio, and it says the date, which was like the late 90s, so towards the end of the time when the studio was active. And um, she said, you know, you're welcome to come around and have a look at it. Um, so I did, and I actually ended up, asking her if I could film her looking through some of the prints so that features in the work um, and it turns out the print is not exactly the same one that I found it's a different one but in that same series I guess of you know 
do you have a shoot, do you have a few photographs? Yeah, yeah. So in this one, the wall stands out a lot more sharply. And I think one of the things that I'd missed, had made me miss it, was that in lots of Harry Jacobs' prints, he has the same background, which is like this garden landscape, this really lush, sort of quasi-tropical garden landscape. And that forms the background to many of his prints, but not all of them. Um, and I was most drawn to this like replicated backdrop. So most of the images I've looked at have been that. But um, there are images that just have a bare backdrop or, and just have like the wall, for example, as mm -hmm. the prop or no props. Um, but the wall was also a common sort of factor. So it was, yeah, I felt a bit like a detective, like looking back and finding this thing. And it, it felt very, again, quite like cyclical, like finding... A, a piece of the puzzle in the archive that I'd felt really kind of connected to. Thank you to Holly for sitting down to talk with me about the show. Be sure to check out the exhibition Haptic Registers, Tender Images, Sonic Frequencies. It includes her brilliant essay, Beholden, A Duty of Care. You can find more of Holly's work at hollygram.co.uk there are also a couple of projects in the Skelf archive. Her show Leaning Against or Holding from 2018 and Bounds from 2019, which is a project she co-organized as part of Cypher Billboard. My final interview in this episode is with the artists Flora Parrott and Kelly Large. Their project Archive of Touches began as a six-month postal correspondence and then became an online project on Skelf. I spoke to Kelly and Flora online via Zoom. You hear me first, then Kelly, and then Flora. So Archive of Touches began as a parcel of objects and images and documents. So it, once something went into the parcel, did it, it kept getting sent back and forth? Yes, yes. So the, the, the parcel got bigger and bigger and bigger. We started off with, I think it was like three, I think the first, the first parcel that got sent off had like three things in it. And then it accumulated and accumulated. So sometimes new things would be added, sometimes the other person would adapt and work with directly materially with what was already in the parcel and other times new things would be added and sometimes both both those things would happen so the first parcel was very very thin the last parcel was three or four inches in thickness mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we had one instant of something going missing and so after that, we had to be kind of like, we, I think we start, I don't, I can't remember if we started registering it or what, but we were sort of um, realising that you're sending this thing off and that it might not, you know, it might not arrive because it's all, it's all in there. But that was okay in the end. There was all, we didn't have another incident like that. It was just one, it was just once, but it was really early on. So that was quite, it was quite good, actually. It was just a little warning shot. I'd totally forgotten about that, Flora. I think that might have even been the first one, might yeah, it? Yeah, maybe, or the second. Yeah, it was something yeah. like, yeah, it was just very thin and we lost the whole thing. And then we had to sort of start again. But actually it was quite a good, it was a good thing because then we, 
registered it or whatever after that. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, so it was the, it was it was like the whole package just didn't arrive. Yeah, but, yeah. It, it did actually eventually. It did eventually. It did turn up. It did turn up. But we'd already started the next. We'd already started again by then because it was just taking ages. We didn't know. It was just a couple of weeks. Maybe because it was straight after Christmas, I think. So. Oh yeah, there was there was yeah. chaos. Yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. chaos. There was chaos. And um, yeah, we, uh, we we sort of just started off being a bit gung ho and sending it off, and then realised uh, we needed to we needed to safeguard it a bit. Do you think the way you were thinking about touch or the way you were selecting objects did that change as time went by and the, and the items in the package accumulated? I think it's a quite an interesting one. I'm not sure if it changed that much. It was just really responsive. So something would come through and you'd kind of, it would just trigger another thought. And um, so I suppose it did change a little bit. It was more kind of evolving conversation really. Um, but what was interesting was uh, looking back on all of those documents, how much the kind of backdrop um, had affected, certainly for me, how I thought about touch because there was all of this um stuff really going on about contamination around covid and 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 those kind of ideas that wouldn't that wouldn't have been there before so i think previous conversations that kelly and i have had along these lines because it's been a kind of interest for us for a few years um haven't has never involved touch as a kind of something that could damage i would say i don't think that we've ever really Brought that into the conversation and as soon as you bring that into the conversation of course it opens up a huge amount of possibilities of the way that touch can damage um but that i don't think that had been do you would say you say it was right kelly it never it had been about communication um and whether that was positive or negative it was more about how you you communicate through touch in some way yeah. um and, and then this sort of backdrop of covid kind of meant that touch had this whole other kind of weight um, or, or for good and for bad of kind of longing to touch, but also of being afraid to, or of surfaces that you were going to touch becoming possibly um, dangerous. Um, even something as simple as there was a photograph of a man with his face asleep on a bus in the window. Um, and those types of surfaces suddenly became things you didn't want to touch. Um, so yeah, I think that I think it changed a lot in the context. So there was, there, yeah, there was definitely a sort of underlying thematic that I suppose was around a sort of new anxiety in relationship to physical touch. Yeah, yeah, exactly what Flora said. Yeah. So it all the process of sending it back and forth was that sort of the first half of twenty twenty two yeah yeah okay. and it, it was when we weren't i don't think we were in it sort of directly in a lockdown i mean the reason we i suppose part of the reason we started off the process as a as a correspondence is because we quite often work via correspondence other works that we've made together have been correspondence based but we've i don't think we've we've never done a sort of postal correspondence and so part of it was i, I suppose that desire for 
physical material. So yeah, that like the opposite of anxiety of touch. The other part was very much about um, like wanting to to work with material, wanting to feel things, feel the surfaces of things, cut things out. You know, that sort of just being being like really analog, I guess, in lots of ways. But and also simultaneously, we we were sort of in and out of lockdowns at that stage, or certainly that sort of you know we live quite far apart from each other. So the the ability to kind of meet up was much reduced. I guess it, if you're you know starting to plan a longer term project at that moment, you know you don't really know six months in the future right. what's going to be possible, but probably the post will be working in yeah. some form and yeah yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah absolutely and i think there was it was nice also just to think because scalp is a digital platform to kind of think about how the conversations that we've had in the past um might kind of take a form in a digital on a digital platform and how that might work and it it sort of very quickly felt that it should be something that kind of had a real analog feel about it you know, it didn't, it, it wanted to be something that in, in which that materiality and that kind of um, DIY-ness was present. It didn't want to feel um, the transformation into something too slick wouldn't have worked because it's never a conclude. we never really come to a conclusion. It always feels like it's a sort of, it always feels ongoing, the conversation with Kelly. It always feels like there's more to come and it's very open-ended. And so it felt like we wanted to, to do something that, um, didn't kind of conclude itself in a neat way uh, on the digital in a digital platform. I don't think that would have felt like the right. I don't know. Then we would have. Then it would have been finished. You know what I mean? And it feels like it wants to sort of. It feels like it wants to keep going. And so it kind of needed to have that quite sort of sketchbook. Sketchbook maybe is not the right word, but yeah. So something like that. You know, it wanted to have that kind of cut and paste kind of feel about it. You know. And in part, that's. Um, I suppose, yeah, your question was about the first part being the correspondence, Mark, and then the second part was that, okay, so what do we do with this yeah. material? Yeah, because how you yeah. I mean, put it online and, and away, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We didn't have any sense of what that might, I think, in fact, I think some of our initial thoughts have been quite different. It, yeah, very. Sort of interactive and thinking about, the web space as yeah something that yeah is really really interactive and I actually think the work itself is is although quite energetic it isn't that interactive in many ways we've sort of made a, a film to, to, to some mm. extent and and so sort of going back to what you yeah so the second part was trying to work out what to do with this surprising material because a lot of it was really surprising like Flora was saying that idea of the kind of anxiety around um around touch sort of coming out I think also sort of there were I think probably in previous conversation in previous sort of works or conversations or iteration public iterations of the conversation a, a lot of our thinking and exploration around touch had been as something that was really quite a, a kind of positive experience mm. and I think that yeah there were I think some of the things that came out in um in in the correspondence also started to think about touch and pain 
touch and power actually like the power you know who touch that is invited and touch that isn't invited and you know very so, so which was so a lot of this stuff was incredibly un, unexpected and yeah just was imbued I think with the conversation you know the, the kind of wider conversations in the world um and I think part of the reason the I think we wanted to because you know it's really quite exciting getting a package through the yeah, post nice. of stuff you know that sort of um opening it up seeing what what the response has been in a way what's what's come you know what what's kind of what's coming to, into your kind of space and I think we wanted to try and kind of keep some of that excitement in whatever the final whatever the final presentation was but also to kind of keep that real sense of handling and touch you know this is a really it's quite it's a in lots of ways it's a really literal work in that you know there's a lot of hands you know it's touch and hands there's a but but I think the material that the material goes off in all sorts of places but I think we also really wanted to keep that sense of that intimacy they're all quite small things because they had to be packed up but just you know the hands hands touching in a way felt really important because we both knew that that's what we were doing when we were opening our packages and also it sort of mimics maybe some or doesn't even mimic it is what artists do you know they work with their hands whether they're doing it online on a screen or whether they're working physically with material so that sort of close that close inness and then also I think you know I mean maybe who knows whether this comes across or not but I think we wanted that sort of in the film the sort of unpacking and repacking to feel like it was infinite Thank you Flora and Kelly for taking the time to speak to me before and after our conversation, we heard small excerpts of the audio from their exhibition, Archive of Touches. Do go and explore the show. It really brings back that amazing feeling of receiving a care package in the middle of a lockdown. Oh, and be sure to click on the hand in the lower right of the page. There's even more of the show we didn't cover in the interview. Flora's website is floraparrot.com. I guess that's all for this episode of the Scalf Podcast, and this is the last episode for a while as the site is taking a bit of a break. In the meantime, the archive of shows and all the episodes of this podcast will still be available. Thank you to Jenny Dunseith, Kate Squires, Davinia Ann Robinson, Holly Graham, Kelly Large, and Flora Parrott. The audio excerpts you heard on this episode were all from the interviewed artists and the touch season on Skelf. Theme music on this episode is courtesy of the Cleaners from Venus and the Free Music Archive. I am Mark Belden. I'd like to send a big thank you to Claire Undy and Lizzie Munn at Skelf. This production is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. Skelf is at www.skelf.org.uk and all the past exhibitions are archived there. Listen or subscribe to the Scalf Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.